Welcome to Classic Paranormal, where we bring you true stories of the weird, strange, and otherworldly from works of literature from the past that time forgot. Don't forget to hit the share button to help promote this podcast. In this fifth episode, you'll be entertained by Hamlin Garland's 40 Years of Psychic Research, first published in 1936. Chapter 13. Signs of Psychic Progress As soon as these articles of mine had finished their course in everybody's magazine, I offered them to Harper and Brothers for publication in book form. They were accepted and put on the market in 1908 under the title The Shadow World. Their text was substantially the same as that which ran in the magazine. Each chapter was an after-dinner conversation dealing with the various phases of spiritistic phenomena, but in my foreword I assured the readers that the book was a faithful record of my experiences. For literary purposes, I've substituted fictitious names for the men and women concerned, but I have not allowed these necessary expedients to interfere with the precise truth of the reports. My aim throughout has been to deal directly and simply with the facts involved. Nearly three years had elapsed since the publication of my novel, The Tyranny of the Dark, and a wish to again sound out the opinions of the academic scholars and experts led my publishers to mail advanced copies to a list of biologists, physicists, and other scientific experts and instructors with a request for a frank statement of opinion. In this way, we hope to discover whether the interest shown in 1904 had increased or diminished. The response was immediate and on the whole favorable. And in the belief that a chapter dealing with these replies may have historical value, I here pause in my personal story and include some of the more significant of the letters. My old friend Flower, editor of the arena in whose home several of the most important seances described in these pages had been told, was one of the first to reply. He enclosed a review which he had written. Of this, I quote a paragraph or two in confirmation of my own report. Quote, As one of the group of investigators who witnessed much of what Mr. Garland has described as taking place in the presence of Mrs. Smiley, I can testify to the accuracy of his descriptions of what happened. I knew that Mr. Garland was making extended notes, and this doubtless accounts for his clear and detailed narration of the extraordinary phenomenon in the presence of the psychic, who, it will be remembered, came to us at our own expense, gave the sittings without a cent of pay, and urged us to make the test conditions as conclusive and satisfactory as we desired. In Mr. Garland's work, we have the graphic description of a series of seances held in the home of well-known citizens under far more conclusive test conditions than usually obtained in what are known as dark seances. The character of the persons constituting the group, the precautions taken to render it impossible for the psychic to rise from her chair or use her hands in any way, and the almost incredible phenomena that occurred Mr. Garland is here given, interspersed with discussions by prominent members of the group, in which the opinions of various eminent psychical investigators of the old world and the new are quoted the whole forming the most popular presentation of certain psychic phenomena, together with views and explanations advanced by world-famous savants that has yet been published. End quote. This review was especially valuable to me for the reason that it endorses my own account of sittings in the flower home. The most significant letter came from my colleague Amos E. Dolbear, still professor of physics at Tufts College, who quaintly said, quote, Glad enough to see some evidence of your continued existence, that neither Wilbur nor others have carried you off though it would please me to learn that he or Mitchell were doing something today. Some of that work was good enough for a story, and I am glad that you think it worthwhile. I can't remember that anything said before had any significance to Mrs. Dolbear or myself. I didn't make out how some of the things were done. For instance, how the books, 24 of them, got off the shelves without Mrs. Smiley's hands being free. She was tied good. End quote. In another letter, he admitted that there was an unsolved mystery in the bringing of the candy box from a shelf behind him to Mrs. Dolbear at her request. In all his cognition, he found no answer to the puzzle. William James delighted me with his frank endorsement. I have just read every word of the book and find the execution very good indeed. I must say that I envy you your privileges in the way of finding such good mediums in private life. Some people seem to strike it fat in that regard, others lean. I, alas, am one of the lean ones. The conditions of opinion as regards physical phenomena is really a scandal. Morsali's book, one would think, might settle it. I have read only the account in the Annals of Psychical Science. I feel morally convinced, that is, I would bet heavily that the future will corroborate all this teleplasty, etc., as a field of real experience surrounding the acknowledged order of nature, and of tremendous cosmic import, whatever the import may be. I am also positively persuaded that mentally we dip our roots into a pool where minds communicate by gleams and flashes, but I have no plausible hypothesis as to the organization of the pool, whether it contains spirits or not, and if so, of how many sorts. End quote. It was, however, in the judgments of the scientific men and heads of college departments in physics and biology that I found a most decided change of feeling toward the entire shadowy universe which my book presented. I turned with a special interest to the letters which bore a university notehead. 
Most of the writings were surprisingly tolerant. Not one of them made vehement protest. One which came to me in the first group may be taken as representative of many others. That the writer should have read the book at all was indication of a changing attitude. Writing from the Department of Physics in a great university, this correspondent said, quote, Concerning phenomena such as you describe, I feel sure that we can no longer consider them all fraudulent. There are too many careful observations by honorable men. We must accept some of them as facts. That these facts are due to the action of the returning dead I cannot believe, and I welcome any biological or physical theory which may serve as a working hypothesis." End quote. Other communications of like significance followed. Another university instructor found himself able to confess that he had given careful thought to it. Quote, the results of your investigations concerning spiritistic phenomena are certainly remarkable. But after some personal experience which I have had in studying hypnotism and mind reading, I am quite prepared to accept your results as genuine facts of science. After thinking over your explanation of the phenomena, it seems to me very probable that you have given the correct interpretation. You have done an excellent piece of scientific work, and I am convinced that it belongs to the realm of biology. End quote. Another biologist in a Western university wrote, quote, My own attitude could easily be stated with great accuracy by certain passages from your book. So what's the use? You probably understand my point of view better than I do myself since you have formulated it, while I have not. I have no first-hand knowledge of the subject, but I am sure that it is time to give it a more serious and sustained consideration than has hitherto been the case. Moreover, the conclusions of men such as those mentioned by you are entitled to a careful study. Finally, your view that we have a corner of the field of unexplored human biology is, I think, the correct view. I should be strongly inclined to stick to this on general principles. Your argument, however, to show that there is a natural connection of some sort between the spirits and the participants in the seance are very suggestive. They are, I doubt not, along the right lines. In some way or other, the phenomena are determined by our own minds. But this is as far as I can go. End quote. The predicament in which many specialists found themselves at that time is delicately and humorously outlined in the following letter from my friend Jewett, whose work is along the line of applied psychology, whatever that may mean. He too was connected with a state university. Quote, I am well aware that if one made ever so little a start toward the type of data which you regard as proper and adequate, one would stop only when there was nothing more or less plausible than anything else. So I am most careful about that first step. End quote. I did not go so far as to call this man's attitude that of a shirker, but he was taking the easiest way out. By evading the subject, he was avoiding controversy and possibly the opposition of his superiors in office. Edison put the investigation aside for commercial reasons. I'm an inventor, he said, not a scientific investigator. A professor of psychology, however, cannot say that psychic phenomena are not in his field. One of the most interesting of these academic confessions was written by a man who had been an assistant in the Department of Physics at Harvard University, but who had later taken up the practice of medicine and as a physician was able to speak his mind. He forecast some of the uses of photography in the examination of certain phenomena. Quote, if someone with means could be interested to fit up a proper laboratory, I believe that the next decade could be made an epoch in physics as well as psychics. Many similar judgments came to me at this time, all clearly indicating a change in academic science which was much more general than our university had cared to admit. One writer made a direct suggestion of procedure. Quote, it would seem to me that yourself or someone familiar with the methods of such investigation should give general directions in some well-known place for conducting such trials. End quote. Here was the end toward which all my work had been directed and which was the underlying purpose of my book. Quote, These phenomena should be studied by skilled men of science in their own laboratories, just as any other biological fact is studied. End quote. Religious teachers were less ready to accept the biological theory. Thomas R. Slicer, a distinguished pulpiteer, asked this very pertinent question. Quote, my query with respect to the spiritistic hypothesis has always been this. Supposing it were possible to communicate with the so-called other world, how can such messages be proved to be from that world when their reception is conditioned upon the terms of this world? I can only become aware of anything in terms of my own consciousness, so that as soon as I am aware of a communication from any source it is no longer from another world, but from this. This is a very important admission." End quote. From I.K. Funk, head of Funk and Wagnall's company, came a gentle rebuke. Quote, Your shadow world is an able and fair presentation of a very difficult subject. But personally, it seems to me that we are demanding the impossible when we ask for a demonstration by a spirit of his identity and at the same time hold telepathy to be a possible explanation. We do not, I fear, give the ghost a ghost of a chance. End quote. My friend William Stead in London, editor of the Review of Reviews, uttered a stronger protest. Quote, I do not in the least object to your concentrating upon physical phenomena. 
It appeals to you, and I have no doubt it will appeal to a very great number of people. I know these things happen, and having once satisfied myself on that head, I do not wish to verify my ready reckoner again. I want to use it for doing sums with." End quote. Among these letters were several confessions from those who had discovered strange powers in themselves. They asked for guidance in the development and use of these forces, and to these I gave careful consideration. From one such medium I received this highly suggestive statement, quote, In some twenty years of experiment I have only twice been able to catch a glimpse of my own astral self. I have sometimes had the feeling that my arms and hands were being duplicated outside my physical body. Some six or seven times there has appeared at my side an exact duplicate of my physical self from six inches to a foot away, and the second body followed exactly whatever movements I might make. I have resolved each time that I would speak to this apparition, but in its presence I have never been able to utter a word. This experience happens without any act of will on my part and is always entirely unforeseen. It has always happened in the evening and on the street near my home. I have had the piano play without contact once when I was ten feet from the instrument and at another time when I was in an adjoining room. I did not feel that I myself was playing the piano nor that my hands were elongated. The sound in the piano seemed due to forces outside of myself." End quote. I wrote to this man proposing some test sittings and he replied agreeably. Quote, While I should be willing to undertake the photographic test you ask for, I wish distinctly to say that it has never been possible for me to guarantee the nature or extent of any manifestation at any particular time. Whatever happens seems to arise from a combination of circumstances beyond human control. End quote. No more appropriate close to this series of letters can be made than to include a letter from one of the psychics whose phenomena I had most carefully tested and recorded. Mrs. Hartley wrote to thank me for the book and for the fair account I had given of her sittings. Quote, it is indeed a faithful record of all that you received from the other world through me. I shall be pleased to recommend the book to my friends. End quote. Chapter 14 The Invisible Composer One afternoon in 1907, at the home of a friend in Chicago, I met a woman of striking appearance who was introduced to me as the most marvelous psychic in all America. Having been called upon many times to test out similar claims, I greeted this wonder worker genially, but without enthusiasm. Her name was not Hartley, but I shall call her that. She was a handsome woman, sturdy of frame, with a broad brow and fine dark eyes. But the quality which interested me most was the gravity of her expression. She was not exactly forbidding, but she made no effort to ingratiate herself. She faced me with unsmiling glance and frowning brow, but surprised me by saying, I have read your tyranny of the dark, and I want to tell you that I found it so like my own case that I was amazed. You couldn't have kept closer to the story of my life as a girl if you had taken it down in shorthand. Thanking her for the compliment intended, I replied, the novelist is necessarily something of a psychic. I further won her confidence by telling her that my mother and one of my aunts had suffered for a short time a similar martyrdom in their girlhood. I am deeply interested in what our mutual friend Mrs. McDevitt has told me of your phase, and I would like to have you cooperate with me in a series of experiments. It may be that my powers would supplement yours. To this she responded with blunt candor. I am in Chicago on a visit, and I will not sit for anyone while here. Furthermore, I am not a public medium. I sit only for my friends, or for such people as are sent to me by friends. She softened her refusal, however, by saying, If you were ever in my home city, let me know and I will ask my guides to give you a sitting. That she was alertly on her guard was evident, and as I won her confidence, she gave me a reason for it. I am a widow with a twelve-year-old son, and I cannot afford to become a newspaper sensation. I must be careful. You understand that, don't you? She ended with an appealing note in her voice. I understand perfectly, and you can trust me. I am not one of these experts who know it all before they begin. I have had many years' experience, and I grant some of the phenomena but I am always in search of new phases of mediumship. I have read your books and I am prepared to trust you, she replied, and we parted with a definite agreement to try out her powers at her own home. The impression which she made on me was so favorable to my purpose that I wrote at once to a good friend who lived near her in the same city. Do you know a Mrs. Hartley who is reputed to be a powerful medium? In reply, my friend wrote, Yes, I've known Mrs. Hartley since she was a schoolgirl. She is well regarded here and all of my friends who have sittings with her report the most amazing phenomena. Why not visit us for a week and test out her powers? Notwithstanding this invitation and the most alluring reports of Mrs. Hartley's phase, I did not find time to carry out this plan till 1908. My shadow world was being written. In my record of this visit, I find these words, quote, November 10th, as a friend of John and Mary Judah, I received last night a detailed report of Mrs. Hartley. She is the daughter of a skilled mechanic and lives in a small cottage not far from the Judas. 
She is respected as a woman, but her social world is not that to which my hosts belong. Mrs. Judah urges me to see her. Her sittings are all in the light. She does not go into trances, so I am told. My friends say that she is intelligent and perfectly sincere. I shall see her tomorrow. End quote. John Judah, who was something of a theosophist as well as a successful businessman, was inclined to smile at my interest in Mrs. Hartley's independent voices. Such phenomena are rudimentary, on the lower level of thought, he said. But Mrs. Judah was entirely sympathetic with my purpose. I will go with you and arrange a sitting. Mary Jamison Judah, the daughter of Dr. Jamison, one of the pioneer physicians of the region, was Booth Tarkington's aunt. She was distinctly of the first families and a most intelligent woman. I greatly valued her friendship and welcomed her aid. We found Mrs. Hartley's home to be a small frame cottage in one of the humbler sections of the city. The house was neatly kept, and while its furnishings were not beautiful, they were in no sense mean or sordid. The psychic met us composedly and promised a sitting on the following morning at eleven. Bring your slate, she said, and write on a sheet of paper the names of those with whom you wish to communicate. Her manner was almost repellent. Her brow was dark, and her glance watchful. Had it not been for her words at our former meeting, I would have called her suspicious. She did not smile during our call. On the way home, Mrs. Judah said, Mrs. Hartley has many notions, one of which is a belief in the influence of flowers. She insists on having them near her. She imagines they help her produce the writing. I'll provide you with a bouquet for her desk. Early the following morning, with a few choice roses and a pair of new folding slates in my hands, I set out for the psychic's house. On the way, I dropped into the university club and on a sheet of its paper wrote these words. Edward, write a few bars from one of your unpublished manuscripts to establish your identity and for M's sake. Edward was intended for my friend, Edward McDowell, the composer who had died a few months before. I'd been much with him toward the end of his life and my mind was filled with vivid memories of him. He had been for many years one of my most valued friends and I thought this an excellent opportunity to test whether his personality could be brought into the seance in any way. That this was an important test will be granted, for while Mrs. Hartley may have read of my friendship with McDowell and of the fact that I had been with him during his sickness, there was no possibility of her knowing any of his unpublished compositions. She was not one to know even his published work. She greeted me as before, smilelessly, and at once led me to her study, a bright little second-story room on the morning side of the house. It was simply furnished with bookshelves, a desk, and two or three chairs. A battered old walnut table which seemed entirely out of key with the other furnishings stood in the middle of the floor. She explained, For many years I've used that table for my sittings. I began to work with it and the forces insist on my continuing to use it. They have been very rough with it lately and have banged it around till it is almost falling apart. They won't let a carpenter touch it, however. They say it must not have any nails or screws in it. May I examine it? I asked. After a moment's hesitation, she replied, Yes. Following an examination of it, I assured her that I could repair it for her. I can tie it together and glue it, if your guides will permit such repair. Again, she seemed to listen to an inward voice. I wish you would, she replied with friendlier tone. As she watched me working, she became almost genial, and when I had restored the piece to a fairly stable condition, she thanked me. I understood her reluctance of its being handled by an outsider and humored her belief that metal of any kind would change its character. What do we know about matter anyhow? When the stand was steady on his feet, I called her attention to the new slates which I had brought. I have already written a note and placed it between these slates. I should like to put them under my foot just as I brought them into your house and see what will happen. She was not as yielding as I had expected her to be. She coldly said, My guides say that you will get nothing unless I have passed my hands over the inner surfaces of the slates. This was disappointing, but considering this a preliminary seance, merely one of a series, I made no objection. Opening the slates, I took out my note and handed the slates to her. After wiping them with a cloth, she held them between her palms for a moment. She then examined the small slate pencil point which I had brought to place between them. It is too hard, she said. I will use one of my own that is softer. I made no objection to this and she then said, I am going down to the kitchen. I have something cooking and while I'm gone, I want you to write the name Dr. Coulter and the names of any of your friends whom you wish to call up. Thereupon handing me several small sheets of paper, she left the room. Taking a single sheet of paper, I wrote on it with a pencil these names, Dr. Coulter, Jesse, Edward McDowell, and David, being careful not to use a pad or any support which might retain an impression. This sheet I folded small and held in my hand. On her return, she opened the folded slates and told me to drop the note between them. She did not touch the folded sheet and could not see the writing. Of that I was certain. 
and as we took our seats on opposite sides of the decrepit table, she put the slates beneath it and asked me to grasp one corner of them. This I did. While waiting, I began to ask questions. She replied, I have never been in a trance, and I never work in the dark. I am not a trumpet or trance medium, and I dislike materializations. I prefer the higher manifestations like direct voice and independent writing. Her methods interested me exceedingly, for almost all the mediums I had studied worked only in the dark and were subject to trance. Slate writing, as the reader will recall, was familiar to me, but I waited eagerly for the daylight voices which her friends had reported were her most distinctive production. While I sat thus, with my arm extended beneath the table, a dull ache came into my elbow, something distinct from fatigue, a pain which ran to my shoulder, and at the same time a chill, a shiver, started in the small of my back, crept upward into my hair, and ended in a shudder, which I accepted as a sign that things were about to happen. I had felt this many times before, but never so powerfully. The psychic, becoming impatient, called to her invisible guide, Come, I need you, dear. And after a few moments of further waiting, she imperiously repeated, Come, I want you. Come, anybody. The response to this command was a violent surge of the slates, a movement so powerful that I could not control it. Back and forth they slammed, shaking the table and almost lifting it from the floor. I put forth all the force in my big right hand and the corner of the slates creaked under the strain. At times they shot toward me as if seeking my protection, then paused and shook from side to side. She warned them, be careful, you'll break the table again. She had commanded the forces to come. She now entreated them to be careful. At last the slates quieted down and I could hear the sound of writing on them. I could feel the writing going on while the psychic's right hand was grasping the corner of the slate and her left hand was in full view. At last she took them out and opened them. Both inner sides of the slates were covered with writing. On one was a courteous message from her guide and on the other these very significant words. I would that you could see me as I am now, still occupied and happy to be busy. E.A. McDowell under this message, and a little to the left, four short lines appeared with three musical notes sketchily drawn between. The name was spelled McDowell instead of MacDowell, but his initials, which I had not given, were correct. At this point, Mrs. Hartley said, this time with a smile, I must go down to the kitchen again. You see, I'm my own cook. While she was gone, I wrote on a second sheet of paper, Edward, give me a bar from your Sonata Tragica. Make it a test. This I folded into a small square and I was holding it in my hand when Mrs. Hartley returned and took her seat opposite me. She said, fold the paper once more and place it between your neck and your collar at the back. In compliance with my rule to accept all the whims of a medium till I gain her goodwill, I slipped the folded sheet between my collar and the back of my neck and again took the corner of the slates in my hand beneath the table. She had not touched the paper and there was no possibility of substitution. Again came the sound of writing, and on opening the slates, I found these still more significant words. I was not a disappointment to myself, but I was a point where nerve force failed me. Edward. This message was accompanied by several marks which seemed to be an answer to my request for an excerpt from the sonata, but it was without the musical signature. I asked aloud as if addressing the invisible, Can't you indicate the key of the composition? He answered by taps, Yes. We tried for this, but did not succeed. We did get, however, another bar on which the signature, a small C, was written. On second trial, the bar was more definite. It is worthwhile to consider this in detail. My request for a bar from the tragic sonata had been written while the psychic was out of the room and the folded paper had not passed out of my possession for a single instant. I had placed it between my collar and my neck. It was still there, and yet here on the slate was a perfectly definite attempt at meeting my request. Furthermore, I had asked for the signature after the slates were closed and in my grasp. I could not tell whether these two bars of music were taken from the tragic sonata or not, but I was now especially moved by the appearance of two additional bars which were clearly defined. Thus, from the first faint marginal sketchy symbol in which the notes were merely indicated by check marks, I had now succeeded in getting a fairly well-defined staff with the signature indicating the key of C. These notes, while still without time values, were more clearly drawn. It is also worth noting that in one of the two bars the composer used a small C and in the other a large C. It will be seen also that progress toward a more definite use of pitch notations was being made. Each attempt yielded clearer, more intelligible results. Now came a message which read, I was so tired and not myself. I am well and in a world of progress. How much the psychic knew of McDowell's last days I had no way of knowing, but the words thus given had very definite significance to me. They referred to the brain lesion which had ended his work and finally his life. The bars of music were a direct answer to my request for identification but I was not able to prove at the moment their relationship to the Sonata. 
In one corner of the slates now appeared a script which looked like a Chinese name, and with it the singular word Ising here, which could be read I sing here, but which had no relation to the other writing. Have you been sitting with a Chinese recently? I asked the psychic. Yes, I sat with a Chinese gentleman for two weeks, she replied, but that was a month ago. Here then was another mystery. This Chinese signature was due to a lingering influence, something which emanated from another sitter. Just as Henry Wallace's psychic had insisted on giving me messages which concerned Wallace, so here a Chinese spirit had left his signature on my slate. Now came a series of rapidly written messages which I copied each time before Mrs. Hartley cleaned the slate. The first question, which purported to be from Edward McDowell, was this. Is my wife happy? Is she cared for? To this I replied aloud as if speaking to him. She is not unhappy, and she is cared for. He then wrote, while I myself held the slate, I thank you for what you have done. I have been told my mind is clear. In this I read a still more direct reference to the fact that his mind was shadowed during the last months of his life. It is possible, of course, that Mrs. Hartley had read of his condition and that I had stayed in the same hotel in order to be of service to him and his devoted wife. No voices came during the sitting, although I had expected them. I went away delighted with Mrs. Hartley's frankness and hopeful of further messages at our next seance. To my sitting on the following morning, I carried a sheet of notepaper on which I had written, Edward, which would you like better, a memorial in Peterborough or a building in Manhattan? This sheet which lies before me bears Judah's home address. To this question I got no reply, not even a reference to it. But the music kept coming, in spite of my repeated declaration that I could not record it. The notes remained sketchy, hardly more than check marks. A record which I made at the time reads thus, quote, The forces were very strong. The psychic showed the strain. Her fingers dripped with perspiration and once she said, My arm is numb and as cold as ice. She was very tense and grave, end quote. The slates now seemed alive and determined to come over to me. They pulled away from the psychic's hands and came to rest upon my knees. But when I started to take them up, they drew away. No sooner was my right hand back on the table than they returned to my knee. I asked, do you want the slates to remain near me? The invisible rapped three times, an emphatic yes. At last, I was permitted to hold them while the writing was going on. The action was very violent, and as I put my full strength into my grip, one of the slates was broken. On taking them out, I found that two more bars of music had been sketchily written. The clef was clearly indicated, and a part of the staff was filled in. But the marks were so hurriedly, so uncertainly drawn that they were merely symbols, suggestions of intent. Edward, I then said, I want you to correct and strengthen these notes and write a word of direction above the two bars. The psychic herself held the slates beneath the table, but again they broke away from her and came to me. While they rested on my knees, I heard the pencil work. On taking them out, I found that the musical sketch had been remade. The line beneath the two bars had been firmly drawn. Some new notes had been added, and two of them had been sharpened. Others which had been very dim were now clearly defined. The notations were all signed E.A., which was puzzling, for I had never known him to sign his name in that way. His middle name was Alexander. The medium, convinced that I was also a medium, now became entirely friendly. We gave, quote-unquote, E.A., the slates to work on again and additions to the musical score were made. I drew a line above the staff and again said, Edward, give me a word of musical direction. In answer to this request, the abbreviation MOD was written. Again holding them beneath the table, I said, write it out in full. Andante MOD was then written, and the word fragment was added with several fine lines beneath the last syllable. The signature was again EA. This was one of the most significant sittings I had ever held, for I was practically in control of the process. E.A. and I worked all the later messages out together. There was no suggestion of complicity on the part of the psychic. She relinquished the slates to me as if understanding that Edward and I were furnishing the power. I heard no voices, and I now spoke to E.A. as if he were in the room and could hear me and respond. This he did by means of writing on the slates. It appeared from his questions that up to this moment he had been unable to reach his wife or to learn of her condition. This was very curious. Why could he not gain knowledge of her? That he signed most of his messages EA was also strange. So far as I knew, he had never done this one alive. Nevertheless, at the moment, I seemed to be in close contact with the spirit of Edward McDowell. About this time, I began to hear a faint whisper which seemed to come from the air a foot or two above the psychic's head and to the left of her. I could distinguish only a few of the whispered words, but the psychic, who said they come from my guide, interpreted them for me. Two personalities, therefore, stood between me and my invisible friend. And yet I must admit that all his queries and answers were astonishingly significant in character. 
He was eager, painfully eager to know of his wife's health. Under conditions which shut Mrs. Hartley entirely off from any normal participation in the phenomena, I continued to receive bars of music, each time more clearly defined in their form than before. These notes, the whisper declared, are from the third movement of my Sonata Tragica. Each written message was accompanied by that curious little device like the letter C with a line drawn through it. I thought this at the time a proprietary signature like the butterfly which Whistler used on his paintings. Later, it developed into the signature of a staff indicating the key. During a third sitting, I secured on the slates, entirely under my own control, another writing of the singular word isn't here, which the whisperer said was the name of an unfinished, unpublished manuscript. Later, the word varied to Izakir and to Unkir. I began to think it might be an ancient form of the word Hungaria, a guess which the whispers confirmed. I secured two more bars of music, which I copied at the moment. Speaking to the invisible, I said, are these from an unpublished score? Yes, the whispered answer. Is it a completed composition or only a marginal note? A small instrumental piece, he replied. Where is it? Among my manuscripts in my New York home. On the opposite side of the slate from the music were some Chinese characters. Some of this music came while I held the slate on my own side of the table. Once the writing took place on the slate while under my foot, I could feel the vibration of it. Some will say, you imagined all that. But part of the time I opened the slates myself and read the message before the psychic did. The writing was real. It is worth noting that after I began calling the Invisible One EA, the signatures were all EA and not McDowell. I was not sure that the psychic realized that EA and McDowell were one and the same person, for as a test I called him Edward Alexander. The whispers had ceased to be uttered by Dr. Coulter. They came directly from EA himself. I must confess that I had the feeling of being in touch with them. As the whispers became more important to me, I closely observed the psychic's mouth, but was unable to detect the slightest movement of her lips or throat. Ventriloquism could not account for the music written between my hands and under my foot. As I write this in 1935, I have on my desk the identical notes which I made during the sitting or immediately after it. The messages appearing on the slate I copied carefully before they were rubbed out. The music continued to come with more and more power, and at last I said, Edward, you've gone beyond me. I can neither transcribe these musical notes nor identify them. I must have help. You remember Henry Fuller of Chicago? He answered, yes. I am asking him to come down and join me in these tests. He can write music, and he is a good amateur pianist. With his aid, I shall be able to make a clear record of your messages. The Invisible One expressed disappointment at the delay, but acquiesced. I said goodbye, and the whispering ceased. These sittings appeared to me to be supernormal, on their mental as well as on their physical side. The messages were all directly to the point and so intimately personal that I could not relate the psychic to them. The Invisible One uttered no banal remarks, no vague philosophy, no bad poetry, and no pinchbeck rhetoric. The later whispered sentences were curt, concise, and highly characteristic of McDowell, and yet the contents of the messages were all within the circle of my own subconscious mind or that of the psychic. The musical notation was rudimentary, for neither of us could write music. To the Judas, I said, unless there's an unpublished manuscript among McDowell's papers in New York, there's no convincing evidence of his identity. I need help. Mrs. Judah, who knew and valued Fuller, said, By all means have Henry come down. His aid should be valuable. Among the notes which I made immediately after the sitting, I find these paragraphs. Quote, Mrs. Hartley said, Sometimes in order to make anything clear, I cover it with my hand. Later, she remarked, Sometimes the personalities brought up by a sitter linger on for a day or two after the sitter is gone. This confuses the record of the next sitter. McDowell does not come to me in that way. He comes with you. People coming to me from another psychic sometimes bring bad influences. She complained of being always a medium. I can never escape it. I get tired of my job. Wherever I go, it is the only topic of conversation, and I am always expected to furnish either amusement or consolation for other guests. She admitted that it was a struggle to keep her sanity. The spirits are always with me. They speak to me all the time. They have no regard for me or of the proper time to talk. They keep talking at night. Sometimes they prevent me from sleeping. I've had them write on my nightdress. My mother devoted me to this work when I was seven years old. She made me sit in the dark for long hours. I hated it, but I could not escape it. My mother considered me just a telephone over which she could speak to those who had passed on. I regard my work as a gift. I use it to do good in the world, and yet my mediumship is considered a disgrace. My neighbors sneer at my son, and the children call him, Son of a medium, son of a medium. He will not enter this room. He calls it the ghost room. 
Sometimes I feel like taking him with me and fleeing into some faraway country where no one would know of my mediumship. She added, sometimes I fear paralysis. The lower part of my body often grows numb. Sometimes my legs are useless. I can't walk. This condition lasts for hours. My hands and arms during a sitting are always cold and numb. Sometimes my arms are as rigid as marble. And yet I go on, for I believe in the work. I consider it the most helpful work I could possibly do. One of the most helpful in the world. She said, spirits cannot see in a room as we do. Coulter often asks, who is here? Time and space don't mean anything to them. She was very serious throughout all our talks. Only once did she smile. This was while telling me of a singular independent manifestation which took place one night in her home. She said, I heard someone walking up the stairway. I thought it a burglar. Creeping to the head of the stairs, I looked down. The stairway was brightly lighted and what I saw scared me stiff. A pair of men's slippers were stepping up the stairs all by themselves, exactly as if worn by an invisible visitor. She smiled a bit sheepishly. I never was so scared in my life. This amused me. What? I exclaimed. You, a woman in constant touch with the invisible, frightened by a pair of slippers on invisible feet? She admitted that she feared the evil spirits who came to her. I get dreadful messages from the spirits of bad men and women. Spirits who use profane and vulgar words. One spirit who came said, Tell my wife how I hate her. He called her all the vile names he could think of. He said, I've waited 20 years for a chance to give that woman hell, and now that I have the chance, I'm going to improve it. Some of the messages are too awful to repeat. End quote. The closer I studied my record of these sittings, the more astounding they became. Quote, what is the meaning of the sign, see with a slash through it? Is that column of strange words a Chinese signature? What is the significance of the word which began icing here, changed to Izagir, then to Ungir, and at last to Ungari? Why should the invisible sign his name McDowell and call his wife Mary instead of Marion? Is the music indicated by these sketchy notes taken from the Sonata Tragica? End quote. These and a dozen other puzzlements led me to write to my friend Fuller, urging him to come down and help me. Quote, I am incapable of recording the music which E.A. is so eager to have written. Heed my Macedonian and come at once. End quote. Chapter 15. Phantasmal Fingers Henry B. Fuller, the man to whom I now turn for help in recording these amazing manifestations, was not only a keenly observant novelist, but a man of cool, skeptical, and alert judgment. He had read widely in records of psychic research, but had never witnessed any of its phenomena. I relied upon his eagerness to experiment when I requested his immediate aid. My reliance was not misplaced. He knew the Judas well and had a very real affection for them. He did not wait to write. He wired that he would come down on the first possible train. Upon his arrival, without a moment's delay, I laid before him the results of my sittings. My invisible composer is insistent on conveying his composition to us, and if we can secure by the supernormal method any part of an unpublished manuscript by McDowell, we will come nearer to proof of individual survival than any psychic record known to me. I can't believe a word of your story, he replied, but I look forward to a sitting with joy. About half past ten the following morning when we set out for the ghost room, as Mrs. Hartley's little son called the chamber in which we had been sitting, I stopped at a stationery store and purchased two flexible book slates, each with two winter leaves. On their corners, I wrote my initials and the date with an indelible pencil. Fuller remarked, Today is Friday the 13th. I hope that will not affect your composer. It won't. He is finished with earthly superstitions. Time does not exist for him. We'll find him waiting for us. Mrs. Hartley received Fuller pleasantly and thanked him for coming. Mr. Garland and I are not musicians, she explained. We need your help in recording the music which Mr. Garland's friend insists on giving us. I have before me at this moment the yellowed sheets of paper on which I had made an immediate record of this sitting. They are dated November 13, 1908, and I would not venture to describe what happened without the corroborative support of these notes. This was the most marvelous sitting of all as the opening line of my first entry. The psychic put powdered slate pencil between the leaves on one of my newly purchased book slates and said, We will try first for a picture. The picture which came on the slate under my hands and without contact by the psychic was an outline drawing of a girl's head with the words Sister Jessie. So far as I am aware, neither Fuller nor the psychic knew that I had a sister, long ago dead, whose name was Jessie. On its physical side, this was literally stunning. The method was supernormal and the writing of the name metapsychical. Fuller then tried and got a message on the slate while it was under his foot. A message which came, he declared, from a colonial New England ancestor a man his family had almost wholly forgotten. Observe the definite statement made at the moment that this message came under Fuller's foot. 
also considered the improbability of the psychic knowing that Fuller had a relation named Payne. One of the slates is before me as I write. On it are the names Jimmy, Booth, Jesse. Jimmy meant nothing to me, and I wondered if Booth was Edwin Booth, but Jesse was the name of my sister. Another rapidly written note follows, quote, The whispers now began to be heard. They appeared to come from the air just above the psychic's head and a little to her right. I could hear the utterances quite clearly, but Fuller was not as keen of hearing as I, and for his benefit, the psychic repeated the words which she said came from her guide, Coulter. I could detect no movement of the psychic's lips or throat. However, ventriloquism does not account for the writing under Fuller's foot, nor for pain. End quote. In his report, written several days later, Fuller says, quote, The psychic was not in trance at any time. She conversed throughout in ordinary voice and manner, except now and then when she undertook to hasten the pace of her lagging controls. Her principal guide, Dr. Coulter, spoke in whispers, but his words were repeated to me by the psychic herself. Later, Coulter seemed to withdraw altogether, and Garland and I were in apparent communication, direct, rapid, and uninterrupted, with an intelligence which for convenience's sake I shall call the composer. End quote. These whispers did indeed suddenly change in character. They became swift, concise, masterful. Line off one of the books for a musical staff, the invisible speaker commanded. And as Fuller started to do this, the composer said, Not that way. Draw it lengthwise on the slate and cover every leaf. Provide for seven measures. It was at once evident that Fuller's presence had aroused the unseen musician's hope of getting his composition recorded. His sibilant directions produced in me the impression of an eager, powerful personality. In fact, they were at the moment and filled with the character of McDowell. I spoke to him as if he were alive, and he replied in the same manner. Fuller, who could not hear all the words, was less impressed with their personal quality. Nevertheless, he lent himself cheerfully to the composer's commands. I quote now from Fuller's own report, which details the exact method of procedure. He wrote, quote, The slate was now entirely in my hands. The undercover of the slate, a flexible leaved affair with a bit of slate pencil tightly enclosed, rested on my knee with the upper part pressed against the frame of my side of the table. My thumb rested rather lightly on the middle of the nearer half of the cover, and my fingers assisted in supporting the nearer half of the undercover. The psychic had surrendered control of the slate entirely to me. She had no contact with it beyond touching the edge farthest from me. Furthermore, the slate was clamped shut with the pressure of my knees. Later, the slate was wholly on our side of the table. During this period, the psychic did not touch the slate at any moment. End quote. I ask the reader's careful consideration of these facts. According to records made at the time or within an hour after the sitting, Fuller and I, two men in the middle prime of life, testified that on a closed slate, under our control in full daylight and without contact by the psychic, certain bars of music appeared in accordance with the directions of a whispering voice, a voice which had no obvious connection with the lips and tongue of the psychic. Even if we grant the possibility of ventriloquistic impersonation, there remains the insoluble mystery of the writing which came on the closed slates which were lying on my knees or under Fuller's hands, wholly beyond the psychic's reach. Leaving the content of the whispered words out of the problem for the moment, I restate the conditions. Fuller and I were seated close together on one side of the rickety table, with the medium on the opposite side facing us. She was leaning back in her chair with her hands in her lap, a look of calm expectancy on her face. That she was pleased by Fuller's ability to receive and record the music was evident, and she left the task entirely to him. I have never had a test like this before, she said. While the whispers were coming out of the air, I observed that her lips were tightly closed, but lifted slightly at the corners. As the whispers increased in power, they became more and more characteristic of McDowell. The construction of his sentences was wonderfully like his speech, concise, quick-spoken, imperious. He became humorous. Once when correcting a mistake, he called it a slip of the tongue. Each moment his musical instructions became more highly technical, passing entirely outside my knowledge and that of the psychic. Note after note was added to the score while the closed slates rested entirely under our hands. The composer from time to time indicated mistakes and dictated corrections as if he saw the writing. All his energy seemed directed toward the recording of an unpublished score which he called Ungari, and which he declared could be found among his manuscripts. As I heard all the whispered words very clearly while Fuller could not, I came to the conclusion that my perception was partly subjective. I spoke to the invisible precisely as if he were in the flesh, hidden behind a cloud. At the moment, I had no doubts. I called him Edward, and he at last began to call me Garland. Fuller addressed him as McDowell. At noon, while in the midst of this highly excited dictation, a whisper from my guide apparently said, Break off now, and come again at three. As we walked away, I said, Spooks are very considerate. 
It is a bit of a shock, however, to find that a process so marvelous as this can be turned off and on so easily. Nevertheless, I feel that we are getting into the upper air of psychic research. If you can obtain the score of that fragment, we will have one of the most interesting and convincing records in all psychic literature. I felt McDowell in those whispers. So did I, Fuller replied. Whether that music came from him or not, it is distinctly out of Mrs. Hartley's comprehension. Furthermore, she had nothing to do with putting it on the slate, for it was in our control. At Judas, we made our report, and during our luncheon hour discussed every phase of our incredible experience. I said, that is the third time that my sister Jessie's name has appeared on the slates or been spoken from the trumpet, but neither my mother's name nor that of my older sister have ever been indicated. Why should Jessie say I died from a fall and make no mention of her mother or father? I don't know what caused her death, but it was in childbirth. Is it possible that a fall brought on premature birth? Fuller remarked, my case is still more difficult. Why should one of my New England colonial ancestors write his name while all my near relatives, recently translated, make no sign? Mrs. Judah was enormously impressed by the musical part of our communications. I don't believe Mrs. Hartley knows a thing about McDowell. She may have heard someone play the Wild Rose, but she could not possibly dictate a bar out of a sonata. Either McDowell was there, or Mr. Fuller himself is the composer. This amused Fuller. I never sat before. All I know of psychic research is what I've read. At three, we returned to our seats in the seance chamber, and almost immediately the composer began to dictate the composition of the score from the point where he had left off. Fuller had some difficulty with one bar, and the composer said, Sing it, Fuller. The sound will help. Fuller protested, I can't sing. I have no voice. Very well, retorted the composer with decisive inflection. Take to the piano. I want you to play the score. The piano, a small upright instrument, was in the parlor on the street floor. And so, while Fuller retained control of the slates, I picked up the decrepit table and carried it carefully down the stairs and placed it with one end near the keyboard of the piano. The psychic then took a seat in an easy chair on the opposite side of the table and settled into place as if she were to be merely an observer. Fuller drew out the bench which served as piano stool and took a seat on the end nearest the keys whilst I sat on the stool close beside him. For two hours we sat there with Fuller alternately recording and playing the notes which the composer dictated, while the score grew into a weirdly sweet melody. At times while Fuller played it, I felt a singular thrill, something like an electric shock. At the moment, McDowell seemed in the air before me and almost visible. During these hours, the psychic sat leaning back in her chair with an expression of indifference, almost of boredom on her face. Her hands were limply folded in her lap. She had nothing to do, in any normal way, with the writing, and I could detect no connection between her organs of speech and the whispers which became stronger as the sitting went on. In fact, Fuller ceased to regard her as an active factor in the game. In his own report, quote, The psychic had surrendered control of the slates to me. She could have had no contact beyond touching the edge farthest from me. For the most part, she had no contact with it at all. I could hear and feel the writing. It was a combination of light and very rapid scratching and pecking while the slate twitched and moved slightly from side to side, end quote. At times, the psychic appeared mystified by Fuller's highly technical comment. Whether she was weary or not did not concern McDowell, but he said to me, Garland, I hope you are not bored, and his emphasis made plain his understanding of Mrs. Hartley's indifference. In his report, Fuller says, quote, The composer throughout was most patient, persevering, courteous. Toward the end, he showed some confusion and uncertainty. Wait a moment, he would say. And once as an aid to his perception, he said, Cover the slate with your hand. This I did, and he said, I see it now. As the work of correction progressed, he asked for the opportunity to make the changes in notation himself. Thereafter, I folded the slates on a bit of pencil and held them on my knees or laid them between Garland's hip and my own, and the corrections were made by the composer himself on the inside of the closed slates. Even the most minute notes were placed precisely on the lines and in the spaces of the staff. With inconceivable skill, the tiny flags were added on the stems of half notes or quarter notes." End quote. Another inexplicable phenomenon must be noticed at this point. While Fuller was making these changes in the notes, the slates were not only entirely out of Mrs. Hartley's reach, but out of range of her vision. That the composer could see the slates was evident, for he not only gave minute directions as to what should be set down or corrected, but said once or twice as Fuller was adding a note, not there, Fuller. When Fuller had changed the position of his pencil, the whisper added, yes, there, as if he had pointed out the precise place. He appeared to be looking over Fuller's shoulder, seeing every stroke of the pencil, and yet his voice came from the air before us. Only when the slate was closed could he himself use the pencil. When Fuller asked, shall I make this an eighth note? The whispered, yes, if you please, 
showed not only his knowledge of the score, but his courtesy. In some instances, he put the little flags on the stems of the notes himself, but only when the slates were closed. He could perceive equally well whether the score was in the lighter or in the dark of the closed slates. Fuller says, quote, On these occasions when the composer directed my pencil, the slate was four feet from the psychic and practically out of her sight. I held the slate on a slant, so that the writing was not only invisible to her, but upside down. She could not possibly read it normally. End quote. The corrections which the composer himself made on the closed slates became more and more astonishing. Notes were changed from one valley to another while musical directions were placed exactly in their proper places. As for the music itself, it became the kind of composition which the psychic could not understand. It was elliptical, touched with emotional subtlety. I found it very difficult to play, Fuller confessed. The composer whispered, I am surprised, Fuller, that you find anything so simple difficult. Slowly, very slowly, after two hours of close operation between Fuller and the composer, the score became a strange melody with a bass accompaniment which the composer called a fragment. He said, Unger means hungry. The first bar of the composition went through me like the sound of his voice. At the moment, it appeared the identification I had been seeking. Nothing I had ever experienced in the seance brought the emotional stir which at this moment I acknowledged. After another half hour of intense application, the control suggested that we stop for the day and resume the following afternoon. Leave everything just as it is and the composer will resume control exactly where he left off. Deeply as I regretted this postponement, I recognized the need for it, for Fuller and the psychic were both very tired and the composer showed signs of weakness. We took away our slates and the Judas were eager to see them. On the table I had placed a small pad, on which from time to time while the sitting was going on, I made hasty notes, recording what the invisibles whispered to me. These are before me at this moment and I quote them, for even in their fragmentary shape they're valuable. Quote, Edward said, tell Marion I didn't mean what I said. Tell her I love her with all my heart. Tell her I knew her, my girl. I knew her when she called me. I heard her when she called, but I couldn't answer. End quote. This was perhaps a reference to his last moment of life. Quote, he was quick as light in correcting the score. He asked for me every few moments. He began to call me by my first name. He said, Hamlin, I want my lectures published at once. End quote. This was not in character. He had always called me Garland. Quote, Someone else, Coulter perhaps whispered, they don't know what you do this slate writing for, end quote. Quote, Fuller and the composer were in full control for more than an hour. Each moment the composition became less sketchy, more exact. The composer insisted on filling in the bass and treble. It is only a melody now, end quote. Quote, I felt Edward's presence. I had a sense of his nearness, end quote. As I compared notes with Fuller, I came to the conclusion that I had for a moment a keener ear than he. For the whispered words were not only audible, they gave me the effect of a voice. My normal hearing was better than Fuller's. Whether ventriloquism can account for the whispers, I do not know. But that the musical composition on the closed slates in Fuller's hands was beyond the psychic's normal powers, I am very certain. On a sheet of yellow paper in my files, I find these lines written in pencil immediately after this astounding seance. Quote, Fuller and I walked away fairly stunned by the significance of this beautiful test. If this melody, so like McDowell, can be found among his manuscripts, it will be a marvelous case of mind reading. Either McDowell knows it or the psychic is able to take it from the manuscript, I said. To this Fuller replied, If it can't be found, this composition must stand on its musical significance. It is beyond the psychic's normal skill. In this sitting were several absolute tests of the genuine supernormal character of the writing. But aside from that, the quality of the melody, so singular and sweet, was above Fuller's power of composition. He found it difficult to play. End quote. To the Judas, I remarked, quote, I have always said that I would follow the evidence, and I am ready to do so now. If Edward McDowell can manifest himself in this unmistakable fashion, I am ready to welcome him. The next thing is to lay this all before Marion and get her confirmation. End quote. That night, for the first time in my life, I had wraps on my bed. They came on my pillow and kept me awake for an hour or two. When I awoke at daylight, I was surprised to find my notebook on the floor and my glasses missing. I searched all about the stand and among the pillows. At last, I found them under the bed, halfway to the wall and nicely set up, with the lenses down and the bows on top. This amused Fuller immensely. I heard no raps, but I saw musical scores all night long. Although conditions were quite perfect at Mrs. Hartley's home, I felt that my report would be more convincing if I could test her powers in some other room. And as the Judas were eager to hear a seance, I suggested that we hold one in John's study. Judah at once agreed. That's a good idea. You can say that she has never been in our house. 
I'll invite her to luncheon, said Mrs. Judah, and we'll have the sitting immediately afterward. We'll have no one else at the table. On the following day, Mrs. Hartley came in a few minutes before one. Mrs. Judah met her in the reception room and led her almost immediately to the dining room. She brought nothing with her but a handbag about six inches long. At the close of our luncheon, we all entered Judah's library together. It was a large room with a bay window fronting the west. It contained an upright piano and a man's desk, and the walls were lined with books. According to my notes, the psychic took her seat at a small table in the bay window. The sun was shining in almost upon her head, and she remained in this position during most of the tests. Quote, she began by giving us all slate writing tests. At one time, four slates were being written upon at once. Judah got a message from Aaron Burr while the slate was under his foot, and Mrs. Judah, while holding her slate in her lap, received a greeting from Newton Booth. She reported, I heard the pencil write, end quote. This message was most significant for me. It answered the question for me concerning the name Booth, which I had received the day before on my flexible slate. I had wondered at the time whether or not this was intended to be a message from Edwin Booth. This question was answered by the message to Mrs. Judah. Newton Booth was a family name and is the name of Booth Tarkington, whose full name is Newton Booth Tarkington. I ask my reader to ponder this fact, which apparently trivial, has very great value as evidence. Why should Newton Booth come to me when Mrs. Judah was not present? What was the influence which produced his name on a closed slate in Mrs. Hartley's seance room? By what magic was he now able to give his full name while writing was going on between two other slates held by Fuller and Judah? Why should Aaron Burr write his name on Judah's slates? How could he do so while it was under Judah's foot? My notes go on. Quote, Judah and I then joined in holding a pad under the table. Writing came on several leaves and on one leaf came a bar of music. Apparently, Edward was with us. The number of the page where I had inserted a pencil was written with a pencil. End quote. I then said to the psychic and pretended complaining, I am neglected. I had no writing on my slate. She smiled genially and said, bring another pad, one that has not been used by anyone. At Judah's suggestion, I followed him to the other end of the room where stood a large roll-top desk. He opened a bottom drawer and showed me a pile of ten or more manila pads of legal size, all new and untouched. He did not handle the pad, but merely drew the drawer open. I took up and examined one of these pads. It had no writing in it and contained some sixty or seventy leaves, perhaps more. Mrs. Hartley, who remained standing behind the table, then said, Place a pencil between the leaves. The pencil I had was at least six inches long. Placing it about the center of the pad crosswise on the pages, I approached the table and presented to her the closed end of the pad, maintaining a firm grasp on the corners of the open end. As I did this, a whisper in my ear said, Have the others leave the room. I repeated this command to the Judas, and they all went out into the hall, leaving me standing before the medium holding the pad firmly by the corners of the open end. The psychic then put one palm below the pad and one above, and in this position we stood for a minute or two. I both heard and felt the writing as I gripped the pad. I heard a whisper say, It is done. Backing away from the psychic, I opened the pad myself and hunted through the sixty or seventy pages. I found three pages in the middle written upon. On one was the name Jesse, on another, Burr, and on the third the words, Have Schubert, E.A. Drawing a line around each of the messages, I closed the pad, gripped the open end, and again presented the book to the psychic. The closed end was toward her, and while I stood holding it thus, I received several other messages. One was for Fuller, signed, Pain. The singular word, Sing Here, was again repeated. Believing that the words, Have Schubert, were part of a sentence, Have being written without a capital letter, I said, EA wants Fuller to play a selection from Schubert. I called to Fuller, who was in the hall. Come in. EA wants you to play a Schubert selection for him. The reader will soon discover that this is a very significant action. When Fuller came back into the room, I told him what had happened and showed him the written words, Half Schubert. Taking my view of it, he went to the piano and began to play very softly. The Judas now came in and took seats. They also agreed that it was a request from McDowell to have something from Schubert played for him. Let the reader bear this in mind. We all thought along these lines. The psychic was moved to do something more for me. She said, go to the shelf and select a book, any book, and put a pencil in it. Walking along the shelves which lined one side of the room, I selected a thick neutral colored volume. In this, without looking at the pages, I laid a long pencil lengthwise, and with the book held by the corners, I approached the psychic. While we both stood, closely watched by Fuller and the Judah, she put the tips of her fingers on the closed end of the book, 
which did not leave my hands. At last a tapping indicated the completed task. When I withdrew and opened the book, I found that a sentence from the right-hand page where the pencil lay had been written along the margin of the left-hand page. A most amazing stunt. Fuller said, why should my ancestor Payne and Aaron Burr intrude themselves? The psychic now attempted to dematerialize a key. I am sometimes able to introduce a coin into a locked box, she said. That she failed in this made the wonder she had previously wrought still more wonderful. Fuller and I assumed that the message signed EA was a continuation of the influence which had been speaking and writing to us. And yet, so far as I knew, McDowell had never signed his letters in that way. I related the use of EA to the fact that I had addressed one of my questions to Edward Alexander. The important fact for the reader to remember is this. Fuller and I both accepted the words Half Schubert as a request for a musical selection. As for the writing in the pad, I offer no explanation of its appearance. I am using it at this moment, September 1st, 1935, for verification. Each of the first signatures or messages is encircled by my pencil marks, exactly as I have described them. The writing is apparently in lead pencil lightly applied. They are all on the middle leaves of the thick pad of manila paper, legal size. Two of my questions heading certain leaves, one addressed to Don Carlos Taft, and another to McDowell were unanswered. The pages are blank. Slight as these phenomena may seem to some scientific men, they are so tremendous in their implications that they would not believe them if they saw them. What would Einstein think if while holding a closed book in his hands he should receive a message written in the middle of the volume? These problems must be met. Neither Fuller nor I was a man of science, but we were in our prime and we were keen observers. In addition to my realistic habit, I had been educated by 17 years in psychic research. Judah, a lawyer, while a theosophic trend of thought, was a businessman, humorous and clear-sighted. And Mrs. Judah, too, though predisposed to believe in these phenomena for the reason that psychic power had discovered itself in her family, was a realist. We all agreed that these tests were evidential. Quote, a singular power resides in Mrs. Hartley, end quote. She came into a house strange to her and sat in a room which she had never before seen. Without a particle of apparatus other than the slates and books which I and the Judas furnished, she produced phenomena which equal in value those witnessed by Crooks and Zollner. That they were on the nature of stunts, I admit, but stunts of extraordinary interest to me. The forces, whatever they were, seemed determined to prove to me the existence of the fourth dimension. Later comment. Let us go over this performance again with a little more minuteness of analysis. The psychic had never been in the room before. She knew nothing of the books on the shelves. At random, guided only by a desire to make identification more difficult, I chose a volume in neutral binding. The book did not leave my hand at any moment, and I held it tightly gripped with the pencil lying lengthwise in the closed side which I held to the psychic. I did not consciously note the pages where I inserted the pencil. Certainly, I did not read the line which was transferred. Now, leaving out the question of spirit agency, let us meet the argument that I was guided in my choice of a book by the mind of the psychic and that the number of the pages was set by her, and that from my mind she had somehow derived the words of the line which she had transcribed. These are preposterous assumptions, but suppose we allow them. How was the writing done? It was apparently made in lead as if with a pencil, but the pencil was six inches long and laid across the lines of print and tightly held in the back of the book. Nevertheless, the psychic appeared confident that she could do the trick, and her voice was a note of calm authority. She directed the test with quiet assurance, she commanded her guide Coulter to give the test. It was not a consoling message. It was a stunt. There was no other word for it. But it was a miraculous stunt. It was as if the invisible agent wished to prove to me that he was not hedged in by material walls nor confined to our third dimension. He wrought swiftly, silently, with no bewildering smoke and no magic formula. If human testimony is of any value, this astounding phenomenon went to its end exactly as I have described it, for I wrote a report of it at once and I had the Judas and Henry Fuller as witnesses. It remains to say that they were under no emotional tension. They watched me in silence, interested and curious, but in no sense bemused. Fuller and Judah were both standing near me when I stepped forward with the book in my hands. The psychic remained on the farther side of the table through it all. The event at the time seemed perfectly natural, but its method remains inexplicable to this day. In the message written in the manila pad, I sensed a personality and one whose mind ran in opposition to mine. But this writing in the book was addressed to no one and meant nothing except to prove that it could be written under conditions impossible to mortal hands. I leave the puzzle to my reader, who may have a clearer notion than I of the existence of a fourth dimension. 
You've been listening to Classic Paranormal's reading of 40 years of psychic research by Hamlin Garland. This was the fifth installment. Be sure to click into the succeeding episodes until the book is complete. Until then, followers of the freaky, aficionados of the afterworldly, connoisseurs of the creepy, stay spooky. Thank you.